Section 27 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 16. The Hostages. Part 1. About once in every seventy or eighty years some exceptionally moving tragedy stirs the heart of the civilized world. The tragedy of our own century is the execution of the hostages in Paris, May 24 and 26, 1871. At one o'clock on the morning of April 6, three weeks after the proclamation of the Commune, a body of the National Guard was drawn up on the sidewalk in the neighborhood of the Madeleine. A door suddenly opened, and a man came hastily out, followed by two National Guards, shouting to their comrades. The man was arrested at once, making no resistance. It was the Abbé Duguerry, curé of the Madeleine, the first of the so-called hostages arrested in retaliation for the summary execution of General Duval who had commanded one of the three columns that marched out of Paris the day before to attack the Versaillais. Both the curé of the Madeleine and his vicaire, the abbé Lamazou, were that night arrested. The latter, who escaped death as a hostage, published an account of his experiences, but he died not long after of heart disease brought on by his excitement and suffering during the Commune. The same night Monseigneur d'Arbois, the Archbishop of Paris, his chaplain and eight other priests were arrested. One was a missionary just returned from China, another was the Abbé Croze, the admirable chaplain Aumonier of the prison of La Roquette, a man whose deeds of charity would form a noble chapter of Christian biography. When Archbishop d'Arbois was brought before the notorious delegate Raoul Rigaud, he began to speak, saying, quote, My children, quote, citizen, interrupted Rigaud, you are not here before children, we are men. End quote. This sally was heartily applauded in the publications of the Commune. As it would not be possible to sketch the lives and deaths of all these victims of revolutionary violence, it may be well to select the history of the youngest among them, Paul Seigneret. His father was a professor in the high school at Lyon. Paul was born in 1845, and was therefore twenty-six years old when he met death as a hostage at the hands of the Commune. His home had been a happy and pious one, and he had a beloved brother, Charles, to whom he clung with the most tender devotion. Charles expected to be a priest. Paul was destined for the army, but he earnestly wished that he too might enter the ministry. Lamartine's Jocelyn had made a deep impression on him, but his father, having objected to his reading it, he laid it aside unfinished. What he had read, however, remained rooted in his memory. When Paul was eighteen, his father gave his sanction to his entering the priesthood. He thought him too delicate, however, to lead the life of a country pastor, and desired him, before he made up his mind as to his vocation, to accept a position offered him as tutor in a family in Brittany. Present duties being sanctified, not hampered, by higher hopes and aspirations, Paul gained the love and confidence of the family in which he taught, and also of the neighboring peasantry. Quote, he was, says the lady whose children he instructed, like a good angel sent among us to do good and to give pleasure. End quote. When his time of probation was passed, he decided to enter a convent at Solemn, and by submitting himself to convent rules, make sure of his vocation. But before making any final choice, we find from his letters that, quote, if France were invaded, end quote, he claimed, quote, the right to do his duty as a citizen and a son, end quote. He entered the convent at Solemn, first as a postulant, then as a novice. Quote, the Holy Gospels, said his superior, St. Paul's Epistles, and the Psalms were his favorite studies the food on which his piety was chiefly nourished. He also sought Christ in history." Still, he was not entirely satisfied with life in a convent. 
he wished to be more actively employed in doing good. He therefore became a student for the regular ministry, a seminarist of Saint-Sulpice. But when the Prussian armies were advancing on Paris, he offered himself for hospital service, as did also his brother. In a moment of passionate enthusiasm, speaking to that dear brother of the dangers awaiting those who had to seek and tend the wounded on the field of battle, he cried, quote, Do you think God may this year grant me the grace of yielding up my life to him as a sacrifice? For to fall, an expiatory sacrifice beneath the righteous condemnation that hangs over France, would be to die for him. End quote. The war being over, he returned to the seminary, March 15, 1871. On March 18, the Commune was declared, and Lecomte and Thomas were murdered. Shortly after this, the seminary was invaded, the students were dispersed, and the priests in charge made prisoners. Most of the young men thus turned out into the streets left Paris. Paul at first intended to remain, but thinking that his family would be anxious about him, he applied for a pass, intending to go to Lyon. At the prefecture of police, he and a fellow student found a dense crowd waiting to pay two francs for permission to get away. They were shown into a room where a man in a major's uniform sat at a table covered with glasses and empty bottles, with a woman beside him. When he heard what they wanted, he broke into a volley of abuse, and assured them that the only pass he would give them was a pass to prison. Accordingly, Paul and his companions soon found themselves in the prison connected with the prefecture. The cells were so crowded that they were confined in a corridor with six Jesuit fathers and some of their servants and lay brethren. A sort of community life was at once organized with daily service and an hour for meditation. Paul esteemed it a privilege to enjoy the conversation of the elder and more learned priests. He conversed with them about the Bible, philosophy, and literature. Quote, he was ready, says a companion who was saved, to meet a martyr's death, but there was one horror he prayed to be spared, that of being torn into pieces by a mob. On May 13, a turnkey announced to the priests that they were to leave the prefecture. Quote, I fear, he said, that you are to be taken to Mazas. I am not sure, but a man cannot have such good prisoners as you are in his charge without taking some interest in them. On being brought forth from their corridor, they found themselves in a crowd of priests, hostages like themselves, who were being sent to Mazas. The youth of the seminary students at once attracted attention, and the vicar-general, Monseigneur Surat, said, quote, I can understand that priests and old men should be here, gentlemen, but not that you, mere seminarists, should be forced to share the troubles of your ecclesiastical superiors. The transfer to Mazas was in the voiture cellulaire. They were so low and narrow that every jolt threw the occupant against the sides or roof. In one of these cells the venerable and infirm archbishop had been transferred to Mazas a short time before. Each prisoner on reaching Mazas was shut up in a tiny cell. Paul wrote, for they were allowed writing materials, quote, I have a nice little cell, with a bit of blue sky above it, to which my thoughts fly, and a hammock, so that it is possible for me to sleep again. I hardly dare to tell you I am happy, and am trusting myself in God's hands, for I am anxious about you, and anxious for our poor France. I have my great comfort, work. I have already written an essay on St. Paul, which I have been some time meditating. I am expecting a Bible, and with that I think I could defy weariness for years." A few days ago I discovered that one of my friends was next to me. We bid each other good-night and good-morning by rapping against the wall, and this would make us less lonely were we oppressed by solitude." At the close of this letter he adds, quote, I have at last received the dear Bible. You should have seen how I seized and kissed it. Now the come-in may leave me here to moulder, if it will. On Sunday, May 21, the Versailles army began to make its way into Paris 
and the commune seeing its fantastic and terrible power about to pass away tried to startle the world by its excesses orders were sent at once to mazas to send the archbishop the priests senator bonjean suspected spies and sergent de ville to that part of the prison of la roquette reserved for condemned criminals paul and his friend the other seminarist were of the number before the gates of la roquette they found a fierce crowd shouting insults and curses many were women and children Quote, here they come the mob yelled Quote, down with the priests shoot them kill them paul preserved his composure and looked on with a smile of serene hope upon his face Quote, the scene was like that horror from which he had prayed to be saved his terror was gone his prayer had been answered the prisoners on reaching la roquette were first passed into a hall where they found the archbishop and several priests the former was calm but he was ill and his features bore marks of acute suffering after an hour's delay the prisoners were locked into separate cells from which real malefactors had been removed to make room for them in the next cell to paul was the abbe planchet by standing at the window they could hear each other's voices the abbe could read thomas a campis to his fellow-prisoner and they daily recited together the litany for the dying one of the imprisoned priests was a missionary lately returned from china and when they met at the hours allowed for fresh air in the courtyard paul was eager to hear his accounts of the martyrdom and steadfastness of chinese converts Monsieur paul said an old soldier who was one of the hostages seemed to look on martyrdom as a privilege regretting only the pain it would cause his family on wednesday may twenty four the execution of the archbishop and five others took place paul saw them pass by his window one of the escort shook his gun at him and pointing it at the archbishop gave him to understand what they were going to do the next day thursday may twenty five the order came quote, citizens said the messenger who brought it pay attention and answer when your names are called fifteen of you are wanted as each was named he stepped out of the ranks and took his place in the death row paul signoret was one of them he seemed perfectly calm and gently pressed the hand of his seminary friend who was not summoned in the courtyard they were joined by thirty-five ex-policemen so-called hostages like themselves the execution was to take place in the rue axeau at the farthest extremity of belleville and the march was made on foot so that the victims were exposed to all the insults of the populace it has been said that when they reached the rue axeau where they were placed against a wall paul was thrown down while attempting to defend an aged priest and was maltreated by the crowd but this account was not confirmed when four days later the bodies were taken from the trench into which they had been thrown paul showed no sign of violence his eyes were closed his face was calm his cassock was pierced with balls and stained with blood he is buried at saint sulpice his father received the news of his death calmly he wrote quote, let us bear our poor child's death as much like christians and as much like men as we can may his blood joined to that of so many other innocent victims finally appease the justice of god but when shortly afterwards charles died of an illness brought on by excessive fatigue in serving the ambulances the father sank under the double stroke and died fifteen days after his last remaining son from the death of the youngest and the humblest of these ecclesiastical hostages we will turn now to that of the venerable archbishop and to his experiences during the forty-eight hours that he passed at la roquette after having been transferred to it from mazas with studied cruelty and insolence a cell of the worst description was assigned to the chief of the clergy in france it had been commonly appropriated to murderers on the eve of their execution there was barely standing room in it beside the filthy and squalid bed the beds and cells of the other priests were at least clean 
but this treatment of the archbishop had been ordered by the commune on the morning of may twenty three the prisoners had been permitted to breathe fresh air in a narrow paved courtyard but the archbishop was too weak and ill for exercise he lay half fainting on his bed in addition to his other sufferings he was faint from hunger for the advance of the versailles troops had cut off the commune's supplies and the hostages were of course the last persons they wished to care for Père Oliverier, shot three days later in the same party as Paul Seigneret, in the Rue Axeau, had had some cake and chocolate sent him before he left Mazas. With these he fed the old man by mouthfuls. This was all the nourishment the archbishop had during the two days he spent at La Roquette. Mr. Washburn, the American minister, had with difficulty obtained permission to send him a small quantity of strengthening wine during his stay at Mazas but a greater boon than earthly food or drink was brought him by Père Oliverier, who had received while at Mazas, in a common pasteboard box, some of the consecrated wafers used by the Roman Catholic Church in Holy Communion, and he had it in his power to give the archbishop the highest consolation that could have been offered him. It had been intended to execute the hostages on the twenty-third, but the director of the prison, endeavouring to evade the horrible task of delivering up his prisoners, pronounced the first order he received informal. The accursed twenty-fourth of May dawned, brilliant and beautiful. The archbishop went down in the early morning to obtain the breath of fresh air allowed him. Judge Bonjean, who had never professed himself a believer, came up to him and prayed him for his blessing, saying that he had seen the truth, as it were, on the right hand of death, and he too was about to depart it in the true faith of a Christian. By this time the insurgents held little more of Paris than the heights of Belleville, Père Lachaise, and the neighborhood of La Roquette, which is not far from the Place de la Bastille. The communal government had quitted the Hôtel de Ville and taken refuge not far from La Roquette in the mairie of the 11th arrondissement. At six in the morning of May 24th, a second order came to the director of the prison to deliver up all hostages in his hands. He remonstrated, saying he could not act upon an order to deliver up prisoners who were not named. Finally, a compromise was effected. Six were to be chosen. The commander of the firing party asked for the prison register. The names of the hostages were not there. Then the list from Mazas was demanded. The director could not find it. At last, after long searching, they discovered it themselves. Genton, the man in command, sat down to pick out his six victims. He wrote Darbois, Bonjean, Jecker, Allard, Claire, Ducoudray. Then he paused, rubbed out Jecker, and put in Duguerry. Darbois, as we know, was the archbishop. Bonjean, judge of the Court of Appeals. Allard, head chaplain to the hospitals, who had been unwearied in his services to the wounded. Claire and Ducoudray were Jesuit fathers. Duguerry was pastor of the Madeleine. Jacquet was a banker who had negotiated Mexican loans for the government. The next day the commune made a present of him to Genton, who, after trying in vain to get a few hundred thousand francs out of him for his ransom, shot him, assisted by four others, one of whom was Ferré, and flung his body into the cellar of a half-built house upon the heights of Belleville. When the order drawn up by Genton had been approved at headquarters, the director of the prison had no recourse but to deliver up his prisoners. Another man, wearing a scarf of office, had now joined the party. He was very impatient, and accused the others roundly of a want of revolutionary spirit. He landed afterwards in New York, where his fellow communists gave him a public reception. One of the warders of the prison, Henrion by name, made some attempt to expostulate with the Vengeur de Florence, who had been told off for the execution. Quote, what would you have was the answer Quote, killing is not at all amusing we were killing this morning at the prefecture of police but they say that this is reprisal the versaillais have been killing our generals 
Soon Henrien was called upon to open the fourth corridor. Quote, I must go and get the keys, he answered. He had them in his hand at the moment. He went rapidly away, flung the keys into a heap of filth, and rushed out of the prison. By means of a twenty-franc gold piece that he had with him, he passed out of the gates of Paris, and sought refuge with the Bavarians at Vincennes. Meantime, another bunch of keys was found, and the executioners, led by Ferré, Lolive, and Megui, that member of the commune whom none of them seemed to know, hurried upstairs. In the crowd were gamins and women, national guards, Garibaldians, and others, but chiefly the Vengeurs de Florence, a corps of which an Englishman who served the commune said, quote, they were to a man all blackguards. Up the prison stairs they swarmed, shouting threats and curses, especially against the archbishop, who was erroneously believed by the populace of Paris to have had provisions hidden in the vaults of Notre-Dame and in his palace during the siege. A turnkey was ordered to summon the six prisoners, but when he found whom he was to call, he refused, and the officer in command had to call them himself. The archbishop's name was first. He came out of his cell at once, wearing his purple cassock. Then Gaspard Duguerry was summoned. He was eighty years old. He did not answer immediately, and was called a second time. Next, Léon Ducoudray was called, a Jesuit father, head of a college, a tall, fine-looking man. He came forth with a proud smile. Alexis Clair, also a Jesuit father, stepped forth briskly, almost gaily. Then came Michel Allard, the hospital chapman, a gentle, kindly-looking man. The three weeks before his arrest had been spent by him in attending upon the wounded of the commune. Finally, the judge, Senator Louis Bonjean, was called. Quote, in a moment, he replied, I am putting my coat on. At this, one of the leaders seized him. Quote, you will want no coat where you are going, he cried. Come as you are. The only one of the party who seemed to tremble was the aged curé of the Madeleine. But his nervous tremor soon passed off, and he was calm like the others. As they went down the winding stairs, the archbishop, being first, stepped rapidly before the rest and turning at the bottom, raised his hand and pronounced the absolution. After this there was silence among the prisoners. Quote, the chaplain Allard alone, said one of the commune, kept on muttering something. He was reciting, half aloud, the service for the dying. Père Ducoudray had his breviary in his hand. He gave it, as he passed, to the concierge of the prison. The captain of the firing party snatched it and flung it on the fire. When the spot was reached where the shooting was to take place, the archbishop addressed some words of pity and forgiveness to the murderers. Two of the firing party knelt at his feet, but he had not time to bless them before, with threats and blows, they were forced to rise, and the archbishop was ordered to go and place himself against the wall. But here, when the bitterness of death was almost past, occurred a difficulty. Two of the leaders wanted to have the execution in a little inner courtyard, shut in by blank walls. So the procession was again formed, marched through long passages and up stairways, and halted while keys were searched for, before it came to the spot. On the way a man crept up to the archbishop, uttering blasphemies into his ear. The good man's mild look of reproof and pain so moved one of the sub-officers that he drove the man off, saying, quote, We are here to shoot these men, not to insult them. The six victims were at last placed in a line, with their backs to the wall. As Ferré was giving the order to fire, the archbishop raised his right hand in order to give, as his last act, his episcopal blessing. As he did so, Lalive exclaimed, quote, "'That's your benediction, is it? Now take mine!' and shot the old man through the body with a revolver. All were shot dead at once, save M. Bonjean. There is now a marble slab in the little court, inscribed with their names, and headed, quote, 
respect this place, which witnessed the death of noble men and martyrs. The warder, Henrion, was put in charge of the place and planted it with beds of flowers. The execution over, the leaders searched the cells of their victims. In most of them they found nothing. In two were worn cassocks, and in the archbishop's was his pastoral ring. One of the party said the amethyst in it was a diamond. Another contradicted him, and said it was an emerald. The bodies lay unburied until two o'clock in the morning, when four or five of those who had shot them despoiled them, one hanging the archbishop's chain and cross about his own neck, another appropriating his silver shoe-buckles. Then they loaded the bodies on a hand-barrow, and carried them to an open trench dug in Père Lachaise. There, four days later, when the Versaillais had full possession of the city, they were found. The archbishop and the abbé Duguerry were taken to the archbishop's house with a guard of honour, and are buried at Notre-Dame. The two Jesuit fathers were buried in their own cemetery, and Juge Bonjean and the hospital chaplain sleep in honoured graves in Père Lachaise. After these executions, a large number of so-called hostages, ecclesiastics, soldiers of the line, sergents de ville, and police agents, remained shut up in La Roquette. It was Saturday, May 27, the day before Whit Sunday. Says the Abbé Lamazou, quote, It was a few minutes past three, and I was kneeling in my cell saying my prayers for the day, when I heard bolts rattling in the corridor. We were no longer locked in with keys. Suddenly the door of my cell was thrown open, and a voice cried, Courage! Our time has come. Yes, courage, I answered. God's will be done. I had on my ecclesiastical habit, and went out into the corridor. There I found a mixed crowd of prisoners, priests, soldiers, and National Guards. The priests and the National Guards seemed resigned to their fate, but the soldiers, who had fought the Prussians, could not believe it was intended to shoot them. Suddenly a voice, loud as a trumpet, rose above the din. Friends, it cried, hearken to a man who desires to save you. These wretches of the Commune have killed more than enough people. Don't let yourselves be murdered. Join me. Let us resist. Sooner than give you up, I will die with you. The speaker was Poiret, one of the warders of the prison. He had been horrified by what had been done already, and when ordered by his superiors to give up the prisoners in his corridor to a yelling crowd, he had shut the doors on the third story behind him, and was advising us, at the risk of his own life, to organize resistance. The abbé joined him with, quote, don't let us be shot, my friends, let us defend ourselves, trust in God, he is on our side. But many hesitated. Quote, Resistance is mere madness, they said, and a soldier shouted, quote, They don't want to kill us, they want the priests, don't let us lose our lives defending them. Quote, the sergent de ville in the story below you, cried Poiret, are going to defend themselves. They are making a barricade across the door of their corridor. We have no arms, but we have courage. Don't let us be shot down by the rabble. It was proposed to make a hole in the floor and so to communicate with the sergent de ville. The prisoners armed themselves with boards and iron torn from their bedsteads and in five minutes had made an opening through the floor. A non-commissioned officer from below climbed through it and arranged with Poiret the plan of defence. By this time the inner courtyard of the prison was invaded by a rough and squalid crowd, come to take a hand in whatever murder or mischief might be done. The besieged put mattresses before their windows for protection. The man who led the mob was one Pasquier, a murderer who had been in a condemned cell in La Roquette till let out by the general jail delivery of the commune. Two barricades were built like that on the floor below. Pasquier and some of his followers had burst open the outer door, and were endeavouring to burn both the prison and the prisoners. Quote, "'Never fear,' cried a corporal who had superintended the hasty erection of the barricades. "'I put nothing combustible into them.' 
They can't burn floor tiles and wire mattresses. Bring all the water you can. The crowd continued to shout threats. The battery from Père Lachaise, they cried, was coming. And often a voice would shout, quote, Soldiers of the Loire, surrender. We will not hurt you. We will set you at liberty. A few soldiers trusted this promise, and as soon as they got into the crowd were massacred. In the midst of the tumult came a sudden lull. The besieged could see that something strange had taken place. The crowd had been informed that the government, alarmed by the advance of the Versailles troops, had abandoned its headquarters at the mairie of the 11th arrondissement, and had gone to Belleville. Amazed and confused by this intelligence, the mob followed its leaders. Only a few minutes before it left, two guns and a mortar had been brought to fire on the prison. They were now dragged away in the wake of the government. The criminal prisoners at La Roquette were in a state of great excitement. They had been liberated, and such weapons as could be found were put into their hands. But they were not inclined either to kill their fellow-captives or to fight for the commune. They hastily made off, shouting, quote, Vive la commune! Vive la république! End, quote. End of section 27